the biggest internet crazes to have emerged since we last spoke is ChatGBT. This is an artificial intelligence chatbot which has been fed with vast amounts of data, like trillions of gigabytes of data, and it's designed to generate dialogue that's so realistic that you wouldn't know if it had come from a computer or if it had come from an actual human being. So, with this in mind, I told ChatGBT what this podcast is about, and I gave it the names of the tunes that we'll be discussing. And then I asked it to write the script for an introduction to this episode that would, and I quote, grab the audience's attention and make them want to listen to the rest of the podcast. Nick and Trev, I have the script right here. Shall we give it a go? Oh, wait a minute. We're going to have to read it. I didn't know this would involve reading. I didn't sign up for reading. Jesus. Okay. Hey there, and welcome to the fourth episode of Which Decade is Tops for Pops? I'm Mike, and with me today are my co-hosts, Nick and DJ Trev. Hey everyone, we're excited to be back and diving into some more great pop music, mate, from decades past and present. That's right. Today we're going to be taking a trip through the 60s all the way to the 2010s highlighting six of the greatest pop songs from each decade. But before we get into the music, we want to hear from you, our listeners. What are your favourite pop songs from these decades? Tweet us at at which decade tops or leave a comment on our website. What? We don't want people to do that, do we? And there will be an agenda <laughs> straight after. It's all right. There are some mistakes in this script, which I, I will identify. I, I love that you've just said, before we get into the music, and my next line is, and now let's get into the music. Good, in it? Right. And now let's get into the music. First up, we've got a song from the 60s that features a hauntingly... No, no, a song from the 60s that features a hauntingly beautiful duet between two vocal powerhouses. I think it was going, doing quite well until the, the, then it went completely mental. Gene and Pitney. <laughs> Just read it straight and we will deal with the obvious flaws of the artificial. I'm not doing my Stephen Hawking's voice anymore because I decided that might be offensive. Uh, next, we've got a song from the 70s that's guaranteed to get you on your feet and dancing along. For the 80s, we've chosen a festive tune that will get you into the holiday spirit no matter what time of year it is. The 90s brought us a song that showcases the soulful vocal talents of one of the greatest pop stars of all time. And for the 2000s, we've selected a song that was a massive hit around the world and showcases the powerful voice of its artist. Finally, we're ending the episode with a song from the 2010s that had everyone singing along and made its artist a household name. So tune in to hear our picks and let us know your favourites. It's going to be a great episode of Which Decade is Tops for Pops? <laughs> do you think we've got any listeners left? <laughs> Please don't do that again. <laughs> I'm never doing it again. Um, there are some matters arising from the material that the artificial intelligence generator generated. Uh, firstly, we don't have a website, so you can't leave a comment on it. Interesting that the bot automatically assumed that all podcasts have websites, there may be a lesson to learn there for future episodes. Secondly, the song from the 60s isn't a duet. 
more on that when we get to the song in question. Also, the song from the 2010s did not make its artist a household name. Um, it, interestingly, when the bot sprang into action, it immediately, without a second's hesitation, started generating that script until it got to try to describe the song for the 2010s, at which point there was a pause of several seconds. It was obviously like trawling the furthest recesses of its memory, like, what is this? And I think it was just inspired guesswork on the bot's part. There, there are people who live in the houses with the people in the band from 2010 who don't know who they are. <laughs> all right. So now all the other listeners have cleared off and we've got the place to ourselves. Let's look at the results from episode three. I am going to announce them in reverse order and I'm going to uh, add a couple of listener comments for each one. But before I start, uh, some of the listener comments do contain strong language. And as we are a family-friendly podcast, I have decided to make some substitutions. And I will continue to use these substitutions in future episodes where they are needed. So, <clears throat> for the second worst sexual swear word, as Trev puts it, I'm going to use the word love or loving, basically because it describes what happens when two people love each other very much. The number one worst sexual swear word doesn't come up this time. I'm sure it will in the future. Number one worst sexual swear word I'm going to refer to as garden. So, right, to give an example, the song that was number five in last year's Christmas chart was Boris Johnson is still a loving garden. <laughs> and there's another very mild swear word, which some people substitute with the word poo, even in official NHS literature, as I found out the other week. I'm not going to do that because I really loathe and detest the proliferation of the word poo. So I am going to use the word waste. Right. On with the results. Now, we have a tie for last position between MC Sarah and the Real McCoy from the 90s and Jerry Halliwell from the 2000s. Neither of these two were voted as anyone's first choice. All the others had at least one first choice. Now, I'm not having it. I'm not having a joint Most Bad and Hated. So I have instigated a tiebreaker clause. Now, what I've done is I've gone through the votes and I've looked at how many voters ranked the Real McCoy higher than Jerry and how many voters ranked Jerry higher than the Real McCoy. Now, in a couple of cases, we don't know as they place both of them in the Met zone. But thankfully, the number of remaining votes is an odd number. So we do have a winner and a loser. Therefore, in last position and earning minus one points for the 2000s is Jerry with Ride It. One listener said, shocking lyrics, weedy sound, but acceptable if you zone out and take it for a here today, gone tomorrow pop track. Another listener said, video is unforgivable, lyrics trite, song derivative of Kylie, Jerry just annoying. However, somehow the song is excellent, easily her best. So the real McCoy duly rises into the meh zone where it joins in fourth place. Shock horror, thinking out loud by Ed Sheeran. Comments on the real McCoy. How can something under four minutes long have such a love me? Is this still going on air about it? And I will happily listen to Two Unlimited. Snap, I even like Dr. Alban. But this is lacking in any merit, I'm afraid. 
comments on Ed Sheeran. Pure pop class. I'm not a big fan, but this is quality, says one. The other says, fine, except that Ed does the poor Wickle puppy voice, so not fine. I enjoyed that. When I read that, that did make me laugh, that. I know what they mean. Into the top three. In third place, we have the Rubettes with Jukebox Jive, earning one point for the 1970s. Nobody had much to say about the Rubettes, apart from one person who said... I actually prefer this to Sugar Baby Love. The constant chorus and the melodic minor key shifts really make it. In second place, it is He's in Town by the Rockin' Berries. So two points are awarded to the 1960s. One listener said, I didn't know this. I thought I might find an unjustly overlooked classic. My first thought was, it sounds like something very early Fairport Convention would have covered. But I hated the vocals and I found it unmemorable. The other listener said, genuinely couldn't understand the love you have for this boring, boring song. I'm still getting over somebody who drew the line at Dr. Alban. That is fine, but anything (laughs) below Dr. Alban is not fine. It's like, what a place to draw a line. I get that. And there is a world of qualitative difference between Dr. Alban and the real McCoy, isn't there, Trev? They would be in the exact same CD of mine. And now that I've moved to digital folders, they would be, well, they are in the exact same folder. Sometimes they follow one another in the mix, as it were. Uh, But more often than not, uh, if I'm playing Dr. Alban, it's my life. I play it immediately after Bon Jovi, it's my life. Uh, And then what do I play after that? Talk, talk, it's my life. Well, yeah. Unless I go with the uh, No Doubt version, because I think that was a good cover. But then that's that's when my It's My Life set runs out. I turn the page and just play Human League, Don't You Want Me, as normal. Of course. And way out in front place by a very sizable margin. Also the only tune that nobody voted for as their most bad and hated. It is, of course, Nick Kershaw's The Riddle, gifting the maximum three points to the 1980s. Somebody said... Lyrically interesting, total earworm, and the best bit is there was no actual answer to the riddle. And the other listener said, I probably thought this was waste at the time, and it's just been there in the background on Radio 2, etc. ever since, but a conscious listen has convinced me of its merits. That's what it's all about, and which decade is Tots and Pops? We are forcing re-evaluation and justice. Now, I don't know everybody who comment uh, on these things, but one of the commenters is a hardcore rave DJ and I'm really impressed that they picked Ed Sheeran as their number one track because like Ed Sheeran is not hardcore is he and I just think that's wonderful we are we're achieving pop things here uh, when a hardcore rave DJ goes yeah Ed Sheeran and thinking out loud isn't even hardcore Ed Sheeran for that <laughs> I know who you mean they will remain anonymous right I fed the results into the master scoreboard And here's how the decades are stacking up. Still in last place, still with minus one points. It's the poor old 2010s in fifth place with one point. It's the 1990s. And in fourth place with two points, it's the 1970s. Now in third place with three points and dropping from first position last time, thanks to Jerry Halliwell, it's the 2000s. And in joint first place with five points each, we have the 1960s and the 1980s. Now, I have a couple of points. There are three points arising, actually. First of all, that Zayn Malik and Jimi Hendrix 
posthumous oh. duet that was intended to bring a whole new generation of listeners to an appreciation of the genius of Jimi Hendrix. Total flop. Didn't even graze the bottom of the top 100. I've since discovered Zayn Malik hasn't actually been in the top 10 since 2017. Also, Zayn Malik's last album was called Nobody Is Listening. How unfortunately prophetic. It's diabolical, that's why. I mean, I know that that doesn't prohibit something from getting into the top 100 these days, but um, oh, it's awful. Yeah, mass shrug. Uh, secondly, we are now being followed on Twitter by someone called Tony Waddington. Now, Tony Waddington is one of the co-writers of Jukebox Jive for the Rubettes. Um, since the last episode, I've had a really good think about Jukebox Jive. I love Jive it. I haven't turned it off. I, I take back all the unkind things that I said about Jukebox Jive. It's such a grower. And what a mistake the Rubettes made getting rid of their crack songwriting team of Bickerton and Waddington. It's no wonder they were headed for the dumper. Yeah, I'm not a sellout. I'm standing by what I said. Um, however, I'm also hoping that Tony Waddington works for Waddington's board games because they are the best board games manufacturers out there. And with Christmas coming, the ideal place to go for all your present ideas. And finally, we've made the top 10, guys. We've made the top 10. Did we make the top 10 of the main iTunes podcast chart? No, of course we didn't. Did we make the top 10 of the iTunes music podcast chart? Well, no, but we peaked at number 76, which ain't too shabby. Did we make the top 10 of the all-important iTunes music commentary podcast? Hell yeah. At number 10 for a day. Nice. We're on our way, folks. That's uh, happening. Climby Fisher's Rise to the Occasion only made number 10 in the charts, and that's an absolute classic, so... Boom! <laughs> Do you like Climby Fisher? I don't, I don't know who they are, no, Trent. I was going to say. I'm surprised it's not come up before. <laughs> I have fed small numbers into the Magic Randomizer, and it has given me a year suffix of seven and a chart position of six, meaning that today we will be looking at records that were at number six in the charts today, the 15th of December in 1967, 1977, all the way through to 2017. So let's have our first track from... The 60s. This is Something's Gotten Hold of My Heart by Gene Pitney. This was the last of 10 solo top 10 hits for Gene Pitney between 1963 and 1967, and it peaked at number five. His biggest UK hits were I'm Gonna Be Strong and Nobody Needs Your Love. They both reached number two, while his best known song, arguably, 24 Hours from Tulsa, only reached number five. Altogether, Gene Pitney had 21 top 40 hits from 1961 all the way through to 1974. But then his duet with Mark Armand on the same song, Something's Gotten Hold of My Heart, reached number one in 1989. Gene Pitney was a songwriter as well as a singer, and he wrote hits for other acts in the early 60s, such as Rubber Ball for Bobby V, and He's a Rebel for The Crystals. However, this one was written and first recorded by the British songwriting team of Roger Cook and Roger Greenaway, who performed in the 60s as David and Jonathan. And it has been covered by other artists ranging from Nick Cave to Robson and Jerome. Uh, Roger Cook and Roger Greenway, massively prolific songwriting duo and production duo. Their biggest success was with I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing, which was the number one hit for New Seekers in 1971. 
Let's start with you, Nick. So in previous weeks, we've talked about how you arrive at some of these songs. So obviously anybody my age probably came to this through the Mark Harmon version in the late 80s, originally just recorded by Mark Armand and early uh, releases of his album, The Stars We Are, contained a sort of solo version of a cover that he'd done. He got Gene Pitt involved latterly, I think, and there was some, they re-released the album with a duet on after it had become actually what was a, quite a massive hit and sort of out of nowhere because... It's not even as if Mark Armand was massive, really, in the late 80s. And Gene Pitney certainly wasn't. So the, that record sort of came out of nowhere. I actually think that I prefer the duet. I think it's slightly faster and slightly grander. I think the original, I think it's a great song, is a little bit weedy. And I'm not a massive fan of his vocal style. Um, this sort of scarlet for me and all that nonsense the nick cave version is also great that robson and jerome i think will not pass judgment on that at this stage so yeah all in all i think i really really like it i have a question about 24 hours from tulsa which which is genius right i know we're not talking about that but we're talking about gene pinney does anybody else other than me remember 24 toasters from scumford absolutely i was hoping that you were going to reference that as soon as you started talking about it was it so tiger tokens no it was mobile's premium card and it does exist because i watched it on youtube today with a bloke who's doing some sort of weird elvis costello impression i don't know when it was i'm guessing the early 90s by the look of the car he was driving in the advert back in the day when you used to fill your car up with petrol you used to get vouchers weirdly hello kids ask your dad and then you used to exchange vouchers for like an ashtray or some glasses it was always glasses like cut glass glasses for some reason. He used to get vouchers for petrol. And there was a TV ad campaign by Mobile. I don't think Mobile exists anymore to sort of sell their voucher scheme where a bloke in a suit sang, I'm only 24 toasters from Scunthorpe, six double beds from Torquay. And I can't decide if I will buy a diamond ring or a drill. It was just marvellous. Look it up. It is fantastic. It was really, really well done. Those vouchers were amazing. Was, was it Esso that did Tiger Tokens? That doesn't sound right in my head. Was it Esso? No, they did. Yeah, yeah. The Tiger T-shirt is, like I think, a design classic. If any listener wants to send me a Tiger T-shirt, go in Loft, you'll have three. I will take that and wear it. I'll tell you what Esso did do, because our local garage in our village was an Esso garage. It did little plastic busts of the England 1970 World Cup squad. And you could slot them into this kind of model football pitch in their correct positions. And it's the most interest I've ever taken in the World Cup. I've got a coin one from one of the petrol companies in the 70s that was coins. Oh, God, it was coins. Oh, it wasn't bus. Yeah, I think the bus was later. Because I kept getting pulled bloody madly all the time. And eventually my dad, who was quite chummy with the garage owner, he persuaded the garage owner to get up with a paper and my, and my dad would sort of rub a pencil over the um, paper-wrapped coins to make sure it wasn't Paul Madeley again, so his little boy could have a full set. 20 fullbacks from Burnley. <laughs> I do compile a extra tracks and bonus bits playlist, which I also attach to the show info, and I will definitely have that mobile advert on there for our listeners to access with ease. It is 60 seconds of sheer joy. Marvellous. Trev, your thoughts? So, yeah, same as Nick. It was the 80s version that I first heard this of. And that is still the 
one for me, but that doesn't take anything away from this version. I think this is like a masterpiece. It's not what you would expect a banging nightclub DJ to say, but it's wonderful. That's the only word I can describe this. It's a stereotype. People like myself, I'm meant to say things like, this is off the chain and this is rolling on doves and this is fat and oh, this is redonkulous and boom, my selector, rewind, bring it up. But no, this is a wonderful song. I think it's got that uplifting 60s vibe that we've had a few times and I imagine we'll have again. The reason that I'm a DJ is because I have no musical skill. I can't particularly sing, but this song makes me want to belt it out. I really want to sing along to this. And if I'm honest, as a start of a 10, I think this leaves the other decades with a lot to do. We've had this a couple of times. When I started on this experiment, because music is subjective, I was expecting that to have uh, myself just loads of nostalgia for the 90s. But this is another one that makes me really sad that I missed the 60s. I think this is a great, great tune. Well, now, Gene Pitney happens to be one of the few famous people to be born on the same calendar date as me, the 17th of February. It's a short list, but I'm going to give you the top five other most famous people born on the 17th of February, according to me. So we've got Barry Humphreys, Patricia Routledge, Michael Jordan. I'm told he's some kind of sportsman. You don't. Yeah. No, 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 no. Come on. You can't say I don't know who Michael Jordan is. I can. I've got trainers with a picture of Michael Jordan on. You have to at least be aware that that guy holding a basketball on trainers named after him is probably a basketball player. Come on. Genuinely had to check. I thought he was an American sportsman. I thought it was probably basketball. He's quite famous, isn't he? Yeah. Okay. Moving on. Paris Hilton, obviously my astrological twin sister. And since I really should have checked this in the last episode, also born on the 17th of February, Ed Sheeran. I struggle to see astrological links between all of those people. So anyway, because he's born on the 17th of February, and I've known this for a very long time, I have tried to nurture a sweet spot for Gene Pitney, but I have failed. This stuff's okay, just not really for me. And there's only one exception to that, and that is, of course, the 1989 version of Something's Got No of My Heart with Mark Armand. Undeniably fantastic, worthy number one. And to my mind, a vastly superior version. Okay, perhaps it's just because I'm more familiar with the Mark Armand version. But to me, the 1967 original just sounds like an inferior cover version, kind of weirdly. It doesn't have the authority of the Mark Armand version. It doesn't have the sheer drama. And like Nick, I've got this written down. It just sounds a bit weedy. That said, it's still a strong song. I've never looked at the lyrics written down before. And now that I have... I think this is a good example of how song lyrics often don't work as standalone poetry, because on the page, they don't quite hang together as a coherent whole. But when you hear them sung, they work perfectly. It's certainly a much better song than I'd like to teach the world to sing, even though I love that song to pieces when I was nine years old and it was number one. The video, the Mark Arman video of this is weird because it's just Mark Arman hanging around by some bins. I mean, maybe that's what Mark Armand was doing in the late 80s. We don't know. Um, but he, he is just hanging around some like wheelie bins down the back alley, which is a little bit odd. And I also hate the word gotten, especially considering this song was written by an English person. I know Americans say it, but I hate the word 
gotten. I've given it a pass in this song, which is kind of weird now I think about it. Yeah, to be fair, that hadn't even really dawned on me because syllabalistically they could have just said something's got a hold and it would still make sense. On that note, let's move on to... This is Darts with a medley of Daddy Cool and The Girl Can't Help It. Darts were a nine-piece British group. They were led by four lead vocalists. Daddy Cool was their first single. It was the first of six top ten hits between 1977 and 1979, and it peaked at this position of number six. Their next three singles all reached number two. That was Come Back My Love, The Boy From New York City, and It's Raining. And then from that point on, Diminishing Returns set in. The original version of Daddy Cool was the B-side of a big US hit in 1957 for a doo-wop group called The Rays, while The Girl Can't Help It was originally recorded by Little Richard, and that version was a hit in the UK charts in 1957. It peaked at number nine. Trev, what do you make of Darts? So I'd hope this was going to be a version of the Boney M song. I did some research to see which year Boney M came out uh, and it came out the previous year and it wasn't. And initially I wasn't really into this. I don't really get that 70s do what revival thing that was going on. You know, we've had a band previously who it was kind of a nostalgia thing and it's a bit jokey. I don't know. Is this serious music? Or is it a joke or whereabouts sort of it sits on that line? And so initially, I was not feeling it at all. And gave it a few more tries because it wasn't terrible. I, you know, I didn't want to poke screwdrivers into my ears and never hear anything again. Uh, and I actually ended up really enjoying it, which for my initial, you know, the first sort of 12 seconds of this, I was like, I am not going to like this. And three or four listeners later, I was like, yeah, this is all right. It's quite fun. I still don't know if people listen to it seriously or if it is just novelty. I mean, it feels like the type of music that maybe people who are really into vintage cars would listen to, you know, with like greased back hair or flat tops and like brothel creepers and stuff like that. It feels like it belongs in a musical. It's got that sound, you know, that just could straight out of Rocky Horror Show or something like that. But I watched the Top of the Pops performance, which finally fully won me over to it and it's good harmless fun yeah it's all right i don't know that i'd ever listen to it again but i certainly wouldn't if it comes on go oh not this yeah nice enough what about you nick so i saw that top of the pop singer so the lead singer looks like an accountant yeah i love that the sparks look a bit like that in the 70s as well a lot of that going on and i want to say was it m the guy out of M? Robin Scott. Who had that accountant type look. Was that a big movement in the 70s? I, I was five when the 70s ended, and so I don't really remember. Well, by the time we got to the early 80s, all, all modern pop groups looked like accountants. Yeah. Like OMD, Heaven 17, ABC. It was all sharp suits, wasn't it? So who brought that in? Were darts leading the way on that? Was OMD in the 1980s going, who do we want to look like? That one guy out of the darts. Not the others. Just the one guy. I don't know much about darts, but right. But if you ask me, when I when this came up, my preconceived idea of darts is that they were a bit naff. That's sort of all I know. And having listened to a lot of darts over the last few days, I can confirm it is naff. I actually hate this. It like really hate it. I also agree with Trev. Who decided in the late seventies that what we needed was doo wop from nineteen fifty seven? I'm always nervous of a medley. 
either you've smashed together two things that don't go together or you're not confident enough in covering the one song you started with. I also assumed when I sat down to listen to it, it was going to be Daddy, Daddy Cool off of the Boney M. And it obviously isn't that. And then you think, what a weird song title for there to be two of. You know, it doesn't even make sense by itself. So why would there be two songs called that? I do like that the best of darts is called Double Top, despite the fact that they never add a number one. Is that ironic or is it just ridiculous? I don't know. So, no, I just I don't like the style of it. And I'd listen to a bit of the other stuff that they did, Duke of Earl. And and it's just it's all naff, I'm afraid. So, no, not for me at all. Well, I'm going to make the case for the defence here and I'm going to let you inside my very weird and very geeky teenage brain in an attempt to justify my position on darts. Right. In 1977, I was, in certain respects, a very doctrinaire teenager, and I drew rigorous boundaries around what I considered to be punk and new wave, which I held to be the only music that mattered, and everything else, which I held to be on the wrong side of history. And, somewhat bizarrely in retrospect, I decided that darts were inside the punk and new wave. I'm going to explain, but I'm completely going to lose you on the logic, right? Okay. Darts were new wave because they were formed out of a band called Rocky Sharp and the Razors. Not Rocky Sharp and the Replays, they came later. Rocky Sharp and the Razors. Now, they had released a couple of singles in 1976 and 1977 on an independent label called Chiswick. And I had been a massive devotee of the Chiswick label. It was one of the very first British indie labels. And I loved the Chiswick label because they put out a lot of singles that were either punk or what we might call proto-punk, or the punky end of latter-day pub rock. Therefore, because Rocky Sharp and the Razors had recorded for Chiswick, that made them punk by association, and that in turn made darts new wave by association, even though both acts were playing basically straight-up rock and roll doo-wop revivalism. But the other thing that made the darts okay with me was their look because they looked sort of new wave-ish. They looked like 1978 more than they looked like 1958. And crucially, they did not look like Shawadiwadi. I should add, full disclosure, I did have a guilty crush on several members of Shawadiwadi, but I was able to file that away in a separate compartment. Added to which, I thought then, and I still think now that Daddy Cool is heaps of fun. Darts, absolute naturals in the top of the pop studio. They were always on for about a year. That front line of four very different characters on vocals really worked for me. And basically everyone else I knew of my age absolutely loved them. That's who they were appealing to. There were people of my own age who all thought darts were great. Didn't know anybody who didn't like darts. And that didn't happen very often for me in 1977 because I was a solitary child with singular tastes. Listen to John Peel every night. Still sounds fun to me today. I love it. And I think it is a better record than Daddy Cool by Only M. There, I've said it. Oh, your, your argument here is basically saying that Chris Waddle is an electro pioneer because he was on New Order's World in Motion. 
Chris Waddle is actually a speedcore Gabba pioneer because he brought the mullet into fashion and kept it there. And everybody who's into speedcore Gabba has a mullet. Uh, for the viewers at home who can't see, I am stroking my mullet. Would you like all the top 20 hits with Daddy in the title? We'll go for it. Yes. It won't take long. There haven't been many recently. It's a sort of word that has slipped out. They're mostly 50s because it's a slightly weird word to put in a song. And when you hear some of these titles, you will understand why. So obviously Daddy Cool, two different versions of Daddy Cool. Daddy's Home, Cliff Richard. Don't Cry Daddy, Elvis. Las Vegas, Daddy's Gone. Daddy, Don't You Walk So Fast. Swing Your Daddy. Jim Gilstrap. Jim Gilstrap. What does Swing Your Daddy mean? I don't even know where that's going. But You Love Me Daddy by Jim Reeves. Don't You Rock Me Daddy. And of course, Annie, I'm not your daddy. Can I just say, I was in a gay club in Manchester last month on a Saturday night, very late. And these two guys came up to me and they said, are you a daddy? Because I don't know really what the roles and responsibilities of a daddy are. They thought I was daddy hot. I took the compliment and moved on. Right, let's move on to... This is Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree by Mel and Kim. Not to be confused with the Stock Aitken Waterman hitmakers Mel and Kim, this was a duet between the comedian Mel Smith and Kim Wilde. It was released to raise money for comic relief. Picked to number three, it was the second of approximately 30 comic relief singles to date, depending on what you count, what you don't count. It followed Cliff Richard and the Young Ones, Living Doll. That was the first comic relief record that had been a number one hit in 1986. Rocking Around the Christmas Tree, as many of our listeners will already know, was originally a number six hit for Brenda Lee in late 62, early 63. Brenda Lee's version has been a regular chart visitor in recent years. It first re-entered the top 100, fairly low down in 2007. Then it started getting a little bit higher every year. By January 2018, it got as far as number nine. January of this year, it actually peaked at number five, its all-time highest ever chart position. It's currently number six on this week's chart. And by the time you hear this podcast, it may even have climbed further. And Rocking Around the Christmas Street was also a number four hit for Justin Bieber in January 2021. Nick, Mr. 80s, your thoughts? It's not in your book, is it? No. So what has happened here, right, is that somebody has gone. Mel Smith and Kim Wilde have the same names as Mel and Kim. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> and that is where the comedy on this record begins and ends. I mean, it raised a lot of money for comic relief, so you don't want to go kind of studs first on it. But there's a bit early on where Kim Wilde goes, this is so corny. And you're like, yes, love, it absolutely is. The only one bit of it that ever make it doesn't even make me laugh, but okay, it would bring a smile is the bit near the end where Mel Smith counts in the final chorus and he goes one, two, three, four, and then there's a gap, and he goes five, and then it goes into the, like the final chorus. And they think, okay, well, that's you know, a sort of joke of, of sorts, but this is terrible, isn't it? I mean, you know, I, I love Kim Wilde. And it, I mean, Kim Wilde went on to have an absolutely enormous 1988. She had three top 10 hits the following year, massive hits, had a really big year. So it clearly did nothing wrong for her career. I don't think it damaged Mel Smith's career particularly. But then if you look at, you know, oh, I mean, number one this week was always on my mind. And then this was clogging up the charts 
and then it ushered in all of those other terrible comic relief records like The Stonk. Do you remember The Stonk? Yes. Even Wright said Fred did one, didn't they? I think it was called Stick It Out. Surprised they haven't re-recorded that for bloody Brexit, to be honest. (laughs) And COVID denial. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Stick it out. Yeah, you'll be... Yeah, exactly. Anti-vax song. It just ushered in all of that banana rama lana nini nuna and all of that nonsense. You know, I love Kim Wilde. It's a great song, obviously, but this is just, it's a novelty nightmare. Trev, are you about to make a case for the defence? Well, I absolutely think Nick has nailed it with how this came about. And it's the, oh, Mel and Kim, oh, Mel and Kim. That's enough to get this comedy over the finish line. But as you were saying that, you were taking one of my great ideas that I have many on the drawing board and making me go, yeah, forget that one. Because the other day in some kind of online conversation, I decided that I should form a musical outfit called Jerry and the Bassmakers, where we would make speed baseline versions of classic pop songs and you saying, look, just because you've got a clever name doesn't mean it's worth doing. It's made me go, you know what he's right so whoever it was i was talking to online about that yeah we're not going ahead with that the song is excellent i think kim wilde performs it very well but in the 80s and generally in novelty songs there's a lot of comedy dialogue which maybe works for the video but just horribly mars the record as a song ant and deck on the ball would have been a great pop football song if it wasn't for all the rubbish bits of dialogue that they had in there and I don't remember at the time the dialogue being that funny on that and I don't remember if the video to this at the time was a hilarious classic it hasn't stood the test of time Mel Smith's awful clunky bits it's just cringe it does sound so of the time but not in a good way it was yeah in aid of comic relief and that's nice but I think they could have just done a version without the crap jokes for airplay because Kim Wilde's got a good voice. I think Mel does actually sing harmonies on a couple of bits. I was listening to it. I can't really work it out. But if he does, then, yeah, good harmonies because it doesn't sound like a football team attempting to sing and it being awful. The song's an excellent record and all the bits that are musical and this are really good. It's just all the crap that just destroy it. So I play out a version of this by Smashby, which is the campest. It's not only the campest version of this song ever. It's just the campest thing ever. And I think I may, on certain nights, start playing the Brenda Lee version as well. Because I actually, the other week, I did actually play the Mel and Kim version out. And it sounds so bad. What reaction, please? Uh, well, the, no, the chorus went as as you expect it would go. You know, they were crowd surfing, singing along and everything like that. And then all the rubbish dialogue bits. And I was like, no, I, in previous years, I made the right choice by playing the Smashby version. I will return to doing that. And I don't think that's Kim Wilde's fault. I don't think it's particularly Mel Smith's fault. I don't think artistically it matters either of them. They were doing a comic relief thing. They raised money for comic relief. Job done. It's just not a lovely job, is it? It slightly unfortunately references Rolf Harris's two little boys as well, which doesn't help. With a picture of him in the video. Yeah. Okay, so I was listening to Nick talking on the radio a few days ago, very diplomatically, I might add, about Lad Baby, because Lad Baby, who originally hailed from uh, Nick's part of the world and used to be my part of the world, they have got a fifth Christmas record coming out tomorrow if you're us or a few days ago if you're everybody else 
It's a cover of Band-Aids, Do They Know It's Christmas, featuring money-saving expert Martin Lewis. And uh, Nick gave a very even-handed sort of discussion of matters arising from that. And it did get me thinking about the whole concept of charity records initially with regard to Lad Baby. The obvious problem with charity records is that they are in some ways immune from criticism. Because you can argue as as they are serving a higher purpose of fundraising for people in need, any unduly harsh criticism of their musical merits is churlish and petty. You know, who do you think you are sitting at home on your high horse when these people are out there giving freely of their time and doing something worthwhile? With that in mind, I hope it's not too churlish of all of us, 35 years after this was recorded, to agree that we all think this is a terrible record. Like everyone else in my generation, I loved Mel Smith when he was in Not the Nine O'Clock News. I wasn't a fan of Alas Smith and Jones, which did with Griff Reese Jones, that had been running since 1982 at this stage. But at least he was making an effort with Alas Smith and Jones. With Rocking Around the Christmas Tree, he barely seems to be making an effort at all. It's just feeble beyond belief. Then again, Maybe we're all just being haughty and elitist. Maybe the rest of the nation was convulsed with mirth and merriment every time they heard it. Well, I wasn't then and I'm not now. Now, as for Kim Wilde, you will never catch me saying a word against Kim Wilde. She enjoys almost Kylie levels of critical immunity from me at all times, even here. And in the video, I would say she was a good sport who was doing her best. Can't ask her more than that. But, right, this brings me on to Christmas records in general. And why do all Christmas records, this included, but all the way up to the present state, why do they all have to adopt that same retro, late 50s, early 60s, Phil Spector style? Because the two greatest Christmas records of all time, according to me, Fairy Tale of New York and Merry Christmas, everybody, didn't fall into that trap. And I, so I don't understand why their greatness has never been repeated. I can answer that question with a suggested further listening track. The reason that Christmas records go 50s nostalgia is because otherwise they end up as the song I'm about to make you listen to, Bass Hunter and Jingle Bass. And it is a Bass Hunter version of Jingle Bells. That's your alternative. Listen to it. It's, I think it's genius. I like Bass Hunter. I think it's him laughing at himself and he is there to be laughed at. But you you check that out and suddenly you too will be nostalgic for that sweet, sweet 50s sound. I think it's also worth saying that Mel and Kim's Rocking Around the Christmas Tree was released in the same year as Fairy Tale of New York. Fairy Tale of New York is just behind it in the top 10 at this point. So if you wanted a fairly stark look at how to do Christmas records well and badly you only had to go to this very week in the 1987 charts i also love kim wilde by the way who doesn't who doesn't she once held the world record for transplanting the biggest tree (laughs) have there ever been any good comic relief records i've got one i mean comparatively good one that almost made me laugh and that would be the Pet Shop Boys doing absolutely fabulous. Thought that was okay. 
towards the end of comic release songs, didn't they just become cover versions? I, I seem to think someone did Just Can't Get Enough. I want to say The Saturdays. Was that a comic relief song? McFly's All About You is a comic relief song, and that's an absolutely brilliant pop record, yeah. Who Do You Think You Are by The Spice Girls was a comic relief release. Really? That's one of, like, if not my favourite Spice Girl record. I think that's a really good tune, that. My favourite Spice Girl record. Also, um, Sugar Babes and Girls Allowed, Walk This Way. That was another comic relief record. But in terms of ones that are actually meant to be funny, I've only got Pet Shop Boys, Ab Fab, and nothing else. Are there any records that just have novelty comedy dialogue in that have aged well? I can tell you a Christmas number one, which still sounds funny to me to this day and still makes me laugh to this day. You may not agree. Uh, Benny Hill, Ernie the Fastest Milkman in the West, number one Christmas 1971, all time. Well, had bass on to reach number one with jingle bass that still makes me laugh to this day and for the right reasons uh, i think um always look on the bright side of life should be a christmas song because it's a christmas film from monty python and the bit of dialogue at the end isn't amazing but it's monty python it's still relatively funny i had a colleague try and tell me the other day at our christmas party that his favorite christmas film is school of rock and we're like what he's like well it's set in the winter and it's sometimes on the telly at christmas and we're like, all right, well, the spy who loved me, the Empire Strikes Back. You know, they've all got snow in. That is as tenuous as this received wisdom that Stay Another Day by E17 is a Christmas record. Well, because they've got a big coat on in the video. E17 dressed like junglists, and junglists have to wear massive, massive coats and baseball caps. That's just what junglists do. It's like Stop the Cavalry, isn't it? I mean, it's not really a Christmas song. It just has the word Christmas in it. It's not really a Christmas song. It's about World War One, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> let's go to the nineties. This is "Together Again" by Janet Jackson. It was the eleventh of sixteen top tens that Janet Jackson had between nineteen eighty-six and two thousand and two, and it peaked at number four. Her two biggest hits both picked at number two. That was "The Best Things in Life Are Free," which she did with Luther Vandross. And that's the way love goes. It is Janet Jackson's most played song on Spotify with 120 million streams. This week, Janet Jackson announced her first US tour in four years. The name of the tour is Together Again. Originally written as a ballad, the track was rearranged as an up-tempo dance song. Uh, Janet Jackson was inspired to write the song by losing a friend to AIDS, and she also received a piece of fan mail from a young boy in England who'd lost his father. So that was the lyrical inspiration for Together Again. Trev, Janet Jackson. Uh, so the criteria that I always mark these on just as I work through, uh, I mention this every time, is am I aware of the song? Do I know it when I hear it? Do I like it? Do I own it? Do I play it? And would I discuss it with musos? Now, I was well aware of this song. I did know it. I do own it and I do play it. I wouldn't discuss it with musos. And I think that's probably down to the middle question. Do I like it? And I've scored this half. In the world of commercial DJing, there is a lot of ambivalence. If I was an underground DJ and like when I do the occasional underground set. I don't play anything that I find a bit meh. I, I either love something and play it or I don't. But for like most of my job, I'm playing to the crowd. So the tunes are kind of tools for me. And this is, is right in the zone of music that I don't particularly feel either way about. That There's not much to dislike it, but by the same token, I couldn't imagine 
any bar, any town centre at nine o'clock on a Friday night and you, you're putting this on and it not working. It's a nice enough song. I like this style of music. I like sort of dance floor orientated tunes. But, you know, I, I don't want to sing along to it. There's nothing that I don't like about it. It's relatively uplifting. And as a commercial DJ, I'm aware not everybody wants, you know, complex emotions conveyed through subtle lyrical wordplay over an intricate key change and complex music patterns and stuff like that. It is This is pop music. It's just pure pop music. You could maybe say it's a bit of a tapping, but, you know, that's fine. When I was writing this, I've written down, I find most of Janet Jackson's stuff sits in that zone. It's entirely inoffensive. It's not massively innovative either. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I couldn't give this any other score than five out of ten. It's right up the middle. It loses points in me for the slow vocal intro. In modern days, that would just get left on the cutting room floor because, you know, we're all instant gratification now. It gains points. Because I find the video a bit confusing, which then sort of sums up, you know, what I knew of the media circus around Janet at the time. It's her and some attractive white people doing a possibly Indian-inspired dance routine on an African plane. And I don't really get it, but given that it's a very, very sad song, the fact that the video left me uplifted makes me think it's certainly doing its job as a video. And at the end of listening to this, you know, like four or five times I listened to it, I was uplifted by it. I don't particularly like it, but this does what it's meant to do. And I can absolutely understand why this ticks a lot of boxes for a lot of people. How about you, Nick? So because of the lyrics and the subject matter of the song, for me, it would have worked better as a ballad. In that opening line in the video where she sings it as a ballad, I can see it working. You know, it's it's about someone close to her has died from AIDS. And then it goes into this happy, clappy banger where she's dancing around, smiling with a load of elephants. I just do not understand it at all. I really, really liked Rhythm Nation. I like the singles off it. I like the album. I think it works really, really well as a it's sort of a concept album a little bit isn't it but i think it really works but it is the only thing of janet jackson's i have ever liked the rest of it i could happily never hear it ever again i mean she's massive isn't she she's had massive hits and stuff one of the most probably most famous artists of the last 20 or 30 years but if you ask me to start naming her songs i wouldn't have the faintest idea and i find this song twee in the extreme potentially just through overexposure to it I just find it incredibly annoying. And I think that's true of a lot of her stuff. I listened to the album that this came off and that went in one ear and out the other as well. And I just thought, I don't ever want to hear this again. And I feel like that about a lot of Janet Jackson's stuff. I could happily never hear it again. So I don't know why. There's nothing in this. You know, it ticks the boxes. Theoretically, it's a nice song. It's catchy and straight up pop record, isn't it? There's nothing clever about it. But I just don't really get it or her or like it very much was it this album is it the velvet rope or the something rope is this album got got till it's gone with q-tip on i know that i like got till it's gone with q-tip i think that's a really well-made song i think her vocals on it are really delicate and you know q-tip's well good I was certainly thinking after listening to this track today, I was like, yeah, I might, might revisit some of her stuff. And then again, for the second time today, Nick has just squashed that idea. <laughs> no, I'll not bother then. 
Uh, you've saved me 45 minutes, however long. She was the biggest artist in the world at the point where this was released because she just signed the biggest recording contract in the history of music with Virgin Records ahead of releasing The Velvet Rope. I think it was her sixth album, I think. So she was the biggest, well, at least commercially, biggest star ever. And no, I, I did the exact opposite, Trev. I listened to the album that it came off and thought, other than Rhythm Nation, I'd happily never listen to another Janet Jackson song ever again. So. Right. Well, once again, it falls to me to make the case for the defence. I liked Janet Jackson for a long time. I liked the majority of singles that she put out with. Yeah, but the only album of hers I ever bought was the first one, Control, which would still be my Desert Island Janet Jackson record. Funnily enough, I'm the opposite to Nick. I went off for a bit with Rhythm Nation. I found it a bit too kind of stark. And then she got back to the sort of stuff I liked and maintained that all the way through the 90s. And generally, I did that sleepwalking into HMV on a Monday afternoon. And if Janet Jackson had got a new single out, I basically bought it. So I bought Together Again. It's the only one of these six tunes I ever did buy. Hadn't played it in, knowingly played it in, like, decades and it's been a very welcome rediscovery it's got something of madonna's early 90s sounds deeper and deeper and vogue come to mind and musically there's some gorgeous modulations in there it gives the song this remarkable feeling of warmth warmth is what i get from this song it's also proper tears on the dance floor stuff it's a happy tune which is mourning someone's passing and it's been credited for winning Janet Jackson, a lot of new gay fans. I can totally see why. There's a direct nod in the lyrics. Say it loud and proud, all my love's for you. It clearly has resonance to the AIDS pandemic, which was still devastating the gay communities in 1997. But it does it in such a loving and positive way. The whole thing feels like a comforting hug. And I think a lot of people needed a comforting hug. I checked the YouTube comments and it confirmed what I already thought. This must have been played at a lot of AIDS funerals. And then the mourners at those funerals would have been dancing to it the following weekend. That is quite a feat to pull off. And I think she absolutely pulls it off. I find it moving. It's grown on with the more I've heard it again. I'm giving it 10 out of 10. I've never played it out and I'm going to try it tomorrow for the first time and I hope it works. I came away from this feeling a lot better about it than I did when I sort of went into the song. I still find it, you know, very up the middle. It's not musically challenging or anything like that. But I thought the emotion that was conveyed in it was to say it's such a light pop song. I thought the emotion was actually very well done. I, I would imagine I will be doing what I said and this will be uh, nine o'clock somewhere. And, you know, granted, having said all that, if it don't work first time I play it, it'll be another 10 years. We can report back next time how our respective plays of Together Again worked. I've only ever played two Janet Jackson songs out since I restarted DJing. When I Think of You from the first album and All For You, which was one of the last hits before Nipplegate completely torpedoed her career. She was the biggest star in the world at this point, just signed a $60, $80 million recording contract. But number one in the very same week that this was a hit was Teletubbies Say A.O. That's because Teletubbies Say A.O., whilst it was a novelty record, didn't have any novelty dialogue in it. They'd learnt from the mistakes of Mel and Kim. I think Virgin Records very much backed the wrong horse there, frankly. Now then, from one powerful soul diva, or whatever it was the chatbot said, 
to another as we step forward into the with No One by Alicia Keys. This was the third of nine top 10 hits that Alicia Keys had between 2001 at 2012, and it peaked at this position of number six. Her biggest hit was with Jay-Z on Empire State of Mind, which reached number two. Like the Janet Jackson single before it, no one reached number one in the USA, and it was a major hit throughout the world. It also received two Grammy Awards in 2008. It's now the second most played Alicia Keys song on Spotify. Behind If I Ain't Got You, it's notched up over 663 million streams. Nick, do you like this better than the Janet Jackson? I do. I mean, Alicia Keys is certainly at this point, 2007, 2008, was massive. This was the sixth most successful song of the entire decade in America. It's the 59th biggest selling Billboard song of all time. It is a, was a monster hit. I think it sold nearly six million copies worldwide. Alicia Keys is one of those people that if you asked me to list people that I like, what music do you like? I would never get to Alicia Keys in a million years. You know, I'd go a long way before I went, oh, Alicia Keys. Whenever I listen to Alicia Keys, again, not very often, because I'd never sit down and think, oh, do you know what I fancy? A bit of Alicia Keys. When I listen to Alicia Keys, I love Alicia Keys. I absolutely love it. I think that she's incredibly talented songwriter, pianist. Her vocals are incredible. And I, you know, listened to the first two or three albums over the last couple of weeks. And I just think it's absolutely fantastic. I think this is a great record. There are songs of hers I like more than this. I love Girl on Fire, Fall In, I think is brilliant. Trev was thinking about Janet Jackson. It's made me want to go and listen to a lot of Alicia Keys. Trev, similarly infused? I mean, yes, in all honesty, absolutely. Uh, she's got a great voice. And like Nick, it's not the kind of music I like, you know, poppy R&B type stuff. I'm very aware of the genre because of my job, get asked probably for some R&B more than I get asked for anything else. You don't get a lot of people coming up saying, can you play some speedcore these days, which is a real shame. It's not the kind of music I like, but for example, this song makes me understand why a lot of other people do like it. I don't really know why Alicia Keys isn't bigger. You know, I listen to Beyonce and I find most of Beyonce stuff okay, uh, with admittedly a few standout moments, but I always think Beyonce seems really really contrived and alicia keys just feels really genuine because i don't love this kind of music i don't particularly love playing this kind of music but this is one of the tunes that when i do play it i love it in the same way that nick is you know reminded how much he likes alicia keys when he hears an alicia keys song when i play this i'm like oh, i should play this more often this and falling, it could be eight o'clock. It sometimes can be 10 o'clock. And I'm like, ah, let's get a few more people on side by playing something that's just a really good singing song that not many people are going to be able to actually sing because she has got a really great voice. But yeah, it's powerful, soulful R&B. It's uplifting and it's positive. And I really think it's great stuff. The video... She has sort of three personalities in the video. So all of them are Alicia Keys, who's incredibly pleasant to watch. But there is one personality where she stood next to a keyboard, I think just playing the chords. 
I don't know what the message is of the video. It looks like they're trying to make her a bit Beyonce in it. And I, I think that's doing her a great disservice. I don't think she needs to be Beyonce. You know, I know they sort of move in the same circles and things like that. But I think when it comes to a comparison between those two artists, I, Alicia comes out far, far on top. And like Nick listening to this makes me go, do you know what? I should listen to more of her music because I just think this is a... Uh, Really, really, really strong. I absolutely agree with you about Beyonce. I think she's miles better than Beyonce, which is going to sound like a really weird thing to say. I don't like R&B at all. So I don't know why I like Alicia Keys. She's a classically trained pianist. And I think there's enough of the piano in it. And she's a good enough songwriter that it evens out the R&B-ness of it. And I think that's why I like it. And then perhaps Beyonce doesn't have that, which is why I'm not a huge fan. I mean, I don't like R&B as a rule. There's lots of R&B songs that I do like, but I think the stuff that I do like tends to be so far down the sort of soulful end of things that you don't really need to call it R&B. You could just call it soul. Uh, Beyonce's Love on Top, you could play that alongside things like Marvin Gaye. That's the type of R&B that I like. It feels real. It doesn't feel like they're just knocking out a hit or knocking out a dance floor banger. And yeah, it's the kind of r&b that i like genuine stuff i think well now once again i'm on the other (laughs) side of the divide i have seen beyonce live twice and i have seen alicia keys live twice all four shows in the same venue in nottingham the two beyonce shows were two of the most staggeringly, jaw-droppingly brilliant live experiences I have ever witnessed in my life. The first one I saw, I had to review. It's the worst review I ever wrote because I just couldn't calm down when I got home. I just wrote 400 words about why Beyonce is just amazing. The two Alicia Keys shows that I saw are two of the most disappointing concert experiences I've ever had in my life. Left me totally cold i have tried quite hard to like alicia keys because she should be in my bag i do like r&b and i really like that whole neo soul movement of the late 90s and the early 2000s people like erica badu jill scott not queen of the jungle the other jill scott angie stone all of that and many many more besides hoovered it up alicia keys should have been right up my street But apart from Falling, which is great, and Empire State of Mind, which is a classic, I've just never clicked with her. And this is a weird one, because like Thinking Out Loud, Ed Sheeran, if we polled the entire population of the world to vote for the songs on this podcast, like Ed Sheeran, this would be our winner. It's the biggest international hit by far, and I have to respect that. But I just find it so boring. It's the same chord progression all the way through the song, apart from that brief bridge section. And after the first few iterations of that chord progression, I just found it deadening. Also, it reminds me of the chord progression in Black Eyed Peas' Where Is The Love? I can't shake that comparison, but some other Black Eyed Peas get away with it, and I don't think Alyssa Keys does. But if I'm being fair, I think maybe no one was such a big hit because it was such a defiant love song. She's proclaiming her love as if she's taking a stand against what the rest of the world is thinking. And I'm sure there were plenty of people in new relationships who could relate to that defiance. For instance, a lot of new relationships spring out of messy breakups or maybe friends or relatives disapprove of the other partner for some reason. And 
you know, if I'd been in that kind of situation in December 2007, this might have become my personal anthem. But I wasn't. So it isn't. There's one good bit, though, I would venture. It's the bit towards the end where Alicia's uncredited hype man steps forward. He pops out of nowhere and he starts going, oh, 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 in counterpoint. Really like that bit. Only bit I didn't like. <laughs> I was like, oh, what a shame they included this. I mean, you know, I, I, I was going to say, I respect your opinion about Alicia Keys. Mike, and you're absolutely fine. You know, if you don't like it, you don't like it. But you think darts a new wave. So <laughs> <laughs> I just, I you know, 15 all. <laughs> <laughs> On to the... With Raksu featuring Wyclef Jean and Naughty Boy with Dimolo. This was the only top 10 hit for Raksu. The only other hit peaked at number 39 10 months later. It had entered the chart the previous week at two. It would have been held off the top spot by Ed Sheeran's Perfect. And this week it had dropped a little bit and it was swiftly on its way out. Raksu were the winners of the penultimate series of The X Factor in 2017. There was only one more series after this one and the, the, the wheels were coming off the franchise, basically. They co-wrote Demolo with six other writers. But in doing so, this made them the first X Factor winners to be allowed to compose their own winner's single. Raksu, still very much in the music industry today, although they are a three-piece, not a four-piece. Their latest single is called Neymar. It was released on November the 25th, and as of yesterday when I checked, it has already notched up over 4,000 views on YouTube. Trev, Raksu. So as I mentioned, the criteria that I go through first and foremost with the tune is, am I aware of it? And then do I know it? I am aware of Raksu. Listen to it. Did I know it? No, I did not. People occasionally ask for bands that are from, you know, these reality shows. And, you know, some of the bands have gone on to be absolutely huge. We've talked about One Direction and Girls Aloud whilst we were talking about another band whose name escapes me, and I'm happy about that. Raksu are one of those bands that people ask about. Not a lot. I didn't get enough requests for me to swallow my dislike of the talent show format to go and listen to it at the time. I'd never heard it on the radio. So I was like, oh, do you know what? Maybe it's finally time for me to listen to some Raksu. Uh, <laughs> like, I don't like the format of the shows. I really don't like the way they build up these artists. And then if it doesn't work out, just cut them loose. Don't offer them any help. And I know so little about Raksu. I may be way off on this, but this just feels like a bunch of lads getting told by a white bloke. This style of music is really big. Go and make something like this. It sounds awful, but it sounds awfully insincere. I can't pretend that I like this style of music in the first place, but there are such songs in this style that I do like, and this really isn't one of them. This is just, it just sounds like people cashing in on a musical movement, if you could call it that. Latin infused reggae on the kind of music that when I used to work for Revolution de Cuba, they would go, Oh, you know, why don't you play some of that? Like the management would. And I was like, I don't want it. It's just not my type of thing at all. And eventually, Revolution de Cuba went, Ah, do you know what? We're going to need to move you on. And I was glad to go because I do not want to play this kind of music. I just feel that four lads who come from Watford, managed by a white bloke, 
doing cod latin music featuring the lyric you make me feel latino with a latin accent is just something i'm not particularly comfortable with and i'm aware that you know i'm a white guy chatting with two other white guys so saying what four people of color should be doing is dicey territory so they you know they should do what they like but simon cowell's clearly comfortable telling him what to do and this is it and it's so so bad it just feels like it's about making money rather than making a good song the guys can clearly rap and they can sing all right as far as it goes but i absolutely bet simon cowell did better out of this than they did yeah do what you like but this feels like they were told what would make them big. And so they did that. I may be wrong. They may sit at home and listen to this kind of music, but I don't really think they do. Nick, you and Trevor being possibly more on the same page during this episode than in any previous episodes. Is this going to continue on to Raksu? Well, it's hard to know where to start with this, to be honest. And, and Trevor's very eloquently covered a lot of the ground that I was going to cover with this. So uh, in 2007, like you say, we were at the, uh, what was your word? We were at the waste end of the X Factor. Uh, We just had uh, Matt Terry, the world famous Matt Terry had won the previous series. And the following series was won by Dalton Harris. I had to look up who Dalton Harris was. There isn't even a picture of Dalton Harris on Wikipedia, right? And he won the X Factor in 2018. Okay, so we're at the waste end of the X Factor. It had already essentially was failing by this point. The whole thing, the this whole Puerto Rico, Shakira, Shakira thing, as Trev rightly says, they're from Watford, mate. They're not from Cuba. The whole thing is so fake. There's not an ounce of, like, genuine relationship with this music or anything in it. It is so utterly false and created. I listen to a lot of their stuff today, and honestly, most of it is worse than this, Right. This song, Neymar. So they've seen AJ Tracy and Dave, right, do a song called Tiago Silva about a Brazilian football. Everyone loves it. So they're like, what can we do? Let's write a song. You know, they might as well have called it Harry Maguire. It's terrible. It's terrible. It's a terrible attempt to cash in on something that has been, like, big. And because they think they can get away with it because it's somehow Brazilian, like Brazilian music is the same as Puerto Rico. It's just all from that side of the world. It all sounds like that. It will be fine. I'm absolutely speechless. They they have a song that's called Let Me, uh, what's your word? Let me get this right. Let Me Love You Like It's 3.05 a.m. So just imagine them singing that for three minutes. Replace the love with, and you're just like, what? What? Why 3.05 a.m.? They don't know. Does it take you an hour and five minutes to get home from the nightclub? Right. That's literally you've timed it. And like you walk through your front door at 3.04. And like (laughs) this is like, let me love you like it's 3.04. And it just goes on and on like that for three minutes. And you're like, no, mates, lads, 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 stop it. (laughs) And the rest of it is just this utterly, utterly contrived fake I think if you heard it in a Montego Bay resort, you'd be like, what the love is this? <laughs> this is utter waste because it just is it's absolutely terrible. I mean, they're probably lovely lads. Christ only knows how they got Naughty Boy at this stage involved because he was working with Beyonce at this point and Sam Smith and people. It's like, how did they get Naughty Boy involved and Wycliffe? 
on this whole thing. I mean, that's Simon Cowell's address book, presumably, to blame for this, because I don't think they add anything to it either. No, just dear God. That's what makes me sad about it, because the only way you can see the video of this version is, or certainly the only way I found, was to watch the entire X Factor clip. Oh, God. Which I don't want to watch because I don't approve of the format, you know, for reasons that I've said already. And the saddest thing of this is, as Nick says, they probably are lovely lads. In the interviews, you could see him being excited and Simon Cowell is there telling him, Naughty Boy loves this. He's a big fan of yours, which just sounds like a lie that Simon Cowell has, you know, phoned up his owed a favour, come over here, do this thing that you probably don't really believe in. And, you know, these, these guys are getting their dreams built up on national TV in front of everybody. And I just don't think Simon Cowell's still holding the hand. Uh, making sure that they're all right now that it's not worked out for him because he's had his payday and, you know, he's out the door. You know, they probably are lovely lads and it's not their fault that Simon Cowell and the gigantic machine that is have just, you know, used them to their ends. It makes me sad. The loser in this final was Grace Davis. Grace Davis is great, right? Independent artist, makes her own music, releases records, is a beautiful female singer-songwriter incredibly talented, writes really great stuff and was beaten narrowly, I think, by what do they call it? The hell percentage. I think it was a kind of a 52-48 vote on the night. When has that percentage ever failed us before? I know, exactly. I'm sure, and this is where Mike's going to tell us he loves it. I'm so hoping Mike comes in with her and I guess it's up to me to build the case for the defence. When I went to Tobago on my holidays, this was all they were playing. (laughs) The thing is... I actually don't mind this. I quite enjoy it. I'm sorry. Right. I will say, with regard to the video, I had to turn the video off because I couldn't bear to watch it any longer. What got me was watching a silhouette of Louis Walsh from behind trying to look like he was enjoying himself. I just found it too embarrassing to carry on watching. However, I have no problem with fake reggaeton. I don't really have a problem with most kinds of cultural appropriation. I don't have a problem with UB40 playing reggae. I don't have a problem with Raksu doing fake reggaeton. I'm used to fake reggaeton because it comes up a lot in Eurovision year after year. I don't mind it then either. I will credit Dimolo for being the most, well, perhaps actually the only up-tempo X Factor winner's single. There's one other that gets close, but this is the only true dance track certainly the only X Factor reggaeton single. You can see why that made commercial sense at the time, because the biggest hit of 2017 had been Despacito by Luis Fonzi and Daddy Yankee, also in the reggaeton genre. It's also the first X Factor winner single to feature two additional artists, Wyclef Jean and Naughty Boy. Again, must have made commercial sense at the time. However, curse of X Factor. After Dimelo left the charts, neither Whitecliff Shaw nor Naughty Boy have ever been named on any other singles that have ever made even the top 100. So didn't work out so well. However, I quite like this because it's fun and I like fun. If, we're going, if I'm going to rank the X Factor winners singles from worst to best, to be honest, it's going to be quite high. Admittedly, the competition is not stiff, but it's still going to be quite high. I think the word Shakira sounds good in a pop song. There's something phonetically pleasing about hearing it. But then the word had hit making form. I thought, I've, I've heard Shakira used in a pop song before. 
course I had. It was in Shakira's own Hips Don't Lie, as voiced by her guest artist, a certain Mr. Wyclef Jean. So you can see how everyone's minds were working when they put this together. Disposable, yeah, pop music, don't really care about that. I enjoyed it. I'm not going to carry on listening to it and I'm never going to play it out, but it's okay. The fact that this was the year of Despacito, it is easy to forget how absolutely everywhere that song was. And I mean, it was absolutely everywhere before they then got Justin Bieber to white it up a bit and sing, you know, a less good verse over the top of it to make it, you know, an even bigger global hit. It was already an absolute massive global hit. It didn't need that Biebering on it. That's why this happened, really, which is often the legacy of at least interesting songs. I don't particularly like Despacito, but I can appreciate it. It's not that song's fault, but it's what comes after. And this is what came after. And for that reason, it marks Despacito down further for me as well, I'm afraid. Let's do some voting. I'm going to ask you, Nick, for your votes first. Righto. So I was so undecided this week. I ha- I literally voted it as we've been talking because I didn't know who I was going to go for. I thought I'm going to listen to the various arguments. I haven't been convinced by darts, I'll be honest. Top Alicia Keys, please. 2000s. Second place, I'm going to go for, even though I like the cover better, the 60s, Gene Pitney. And then third, it's hard because I don't really like any of them, but I'm going to go for the 90s and Janet Jackson only because it's slightly better than the rest of that stuff. Most hated, again, I've just changed my mind. I'm going to go for the 2010s. I was going to go for darts, but I think I am going to go for, I think I'd rather hear that darts song again than four lads from Watford shout Shakira, Shakira. Okay, Trev, let's have your votes. Yeah, number one, uh, Alicia Keys. When I saw the track list, uh, I didn't think it would be number one. And then just listening to it, and whilst I didn't even particularly love the video, it's not unpleasant watching Alicia Keys in the video, is it? It just reminded me how good it is. So that was an easy one. Gene Pitney at number two. I think it's my favourite song, actually, over Alicia Keys, but I think the 80s version would have won. I think it's got that bit more bombast to it. Uh, there's a little bit of a call and response to uh, what him and Mark Armand do. So, yeah. Uh, and then third, which really surprised me, is Janet Jackson. And it's not because I think the others are particularly bad, because I, I think the darts has got something to it. I think Melon Kim has got something to it. It's got a, a great original song to it. But... The more listens, I still would only give it five out of ten. But again, just that music that I can understand why other people like. Worst was Dead Easy, it's Raksu. I think I've already given them enough of a kick in. And it does make me sad. I'm sure they're lovely lads and I'm sure they're capable of better than this. They were just in a reality show that chews up people and spits them out. And they've spat out that. Interesting in that... Your two sets of votes are perfectly aligned with each other. I'm here to change all that. Right. It'll come as no surprise to you to learn that Janet Jackson is my number one for reasons I've already uh, discussed at some length. And it won't surprise you to know that my number two is those godfathers of punk and new way darts with Daddy Cool. I was undecided for quite a while between third place because I genuinely was considering Raksu for third place. But I've seen sense. I'm giving third place to Gene Pitney because of the song, but only because of the song, because that recording doesn't do it for me. But it's a great song. 
In the Met zone go Alicia Keys and Raksu, my most bad and hated. And I'm totally expecting this to be unanimous. And I'm still expecting it to be unanimous amongst our listeners. My most bad and hated by a massive margin is Mel Smith and Kim Wilde. Just trash, in my opinion. I've totted them all up. So in sixth place, minus two points, Raksu. In fifth place, with minus one point, we have Mel and Kim from the 80s. Fourth place, two points, darts from the 70s. Then, and I'm just rechecking the votes, yes. Uh, yeah, okay. In joint second place with five points each, we have Gene Pitney and Janet Jackson, which means currently ahead with six points for the 2000s is Alicia Keys and no one. But that's just what we think. What's really important is what you think. Please send in your votes. These are the ways in which you can do that. You can tweet us on what's left of the burning embers of Twitter at, at which decade tops. You can email us at which decade is tops at gmail.com. You can leave a comment on Facebook, just search for which decade is tops pops. You'll find it. You need to specify your first, second and third favourites in descending order of preference, plus your most bad and hated or at least your least favourite. And if you want to supply some additional comments, they will be most welcome and we will read a selection out in the next episode. I think that concludes our business this side of Christmas. So um, I hope all our listeners will be rocking around that Christmas tree. You know what I want for Christmas? Banana-rama! Oh, this is so corny. A trio of crackers. <laughs> Any Christmas greetings for the listeners, DJ Trev? I will say this Christmas, be kind to your DJ. So I hope everybody has a lovely Christmas. But this Christmas, do be kind to your DJ because a million people want a million songs and they all want them next and we're just doing our best. Uh, but I really hope everyone has a nice Christmas. Here, here. Goodbye, everybody. Which decade is Tops for Pops?